Perhaps this morning you're someone who has never heard of the Peter Pan syndrome. So allow me the, to use the words of this author to introduce it to you. He writes, we all remember the compelling story of the happy-go-lucky Peter Pan, the soft, effeminate boy who wouldn't grow up. It was Peter who showed us the glory of eternal youth. Peter Pan symbolizes the essence of youthfulness, the joy. He awakens the child inside all of us, and we are drawn to him. He is wonderful, and he offers us the hand of an everlasting playmate. But how many of us realize there is another side to the classic character created by J.M. Barry? Have you ever stopped to consider why Peter Pan wanted to stay young? Sure, it's tough to grow up, but Peter Pan avoided it vehemently. What made him reject all things adult? What was he really after? Wasn't Peter's desire to stay young actually really a militant refusal to grow up? A careful thought reading of Barry's original play opened my eyes to a chilling reality. As much as I wanted to believe the contrary, Peter Pan was really a sad young man. His life was filled with contradictions, conflict, and confusion. For all his gaiety, he was a deeply troubled young boy, living in an even more troubling time. He was caught in the abyss between a man he didn't want to become and the boy he could no longer be. And he continues, unknown to, many, unknown to many parents who love them, many of our children are unwittingly following the footsteps of Peter Pan. With increasing frequency, the little-known side of Peter Pan has captured the heart and soul of a large segment of our children. Like Peter's contemporary, our male, our male children are suffering the most. All across the land, young men are refusing to grow up. Hundreds of thousands are moving toward a manhood that frightens them. In a state of fear, they rush to join the ranks of the Legion of the Lost Boys. Many so-called successful men, adult men, still behave like children. Good morning and a welcome to this part of the service uh, I felt led to, to step away from uh, a study in, in Romans. Uh, partially it was because I, I felt I needed a discernment and an understanding uh, to some of the life struggles for men, especially younger men. And uh, I, I recently came across those words in my study guide, one of my study guides, caught in the abyss between the man they didn't want to become and the boy they didn't no longer the boy they could no longer be and those words just gripped me uh, i think of so many men uh, who are who are who are caught in never neverland and uh, who are forced to take a, a man's role and still desiring to live like a boy um Staying young, it just kind of puts another side to that philosophy of this world that we're living in. Staying young and just never growing up. 
trapped. Adolescence and adult bodies. You know, I, I believe in, in, a, in a balance and uh, a healthy dose of reality. That, you know, which one of us guys hasn't thought back to those good old days when we didn't have much responsibility? Uh, had our feet under dad's table and uh, had a lot of energy. We, we long cast a, a long glance back to those days, but reality has a k- kind of a way of killing the magic. <laughs> I want to include one more quote from this writer. He writes, I remember my own encounter with Peter and his magical dust. I wasn't as invisible to adults as Peter was, but I did try to fly away by jumping off the chicken shed like my feathery friends. Nature gave me a down-to-earth and a painful reality. I also told my grandma I wasn't going to grow up. She was kind and compassionate and said, That's nice, Danny. Now go out to the garden and hoe the tomatoes. (laughs) Reality neutralizes the power of the magical dust. But if children enter their adolescence in full pursuit of eternal youth, monumental problems develop as reality becomes clouded. If they reach the beginning of the third decade with the same outlook, a serious identity crisis will consume them. Sometimes during their early 20s, some recover and an increasing number do not. Your son might be a victim, and so might be your husband. You know, I find these words helpful as we consider what it means to grow up, uh, what it means to to be mature. And I wish I could say this morning that, that we as Christians are immune to the Peter Pan syndrome, but sadly we aren't. Uh, In fact, even from the pages of Scripture, I can show you three men who had the Peter Pan syndrome. It's kind of a study in tragedy. One of them recovered. Two of them, we read that as far as we can read, they never recovered. Now, as we consider spiritual teenagers, let me give you some of the characteristics. First of all, there is an instability when the going gets tough. It's the mark of adolescence that when the tough, when the going gets tough, there's instability, there's a, a restlessness, and there's a desire to quit. Um, often that desire gets carried out. Instead of a, a long obedience in the same direction, there are short bursts in various directions. There's little, there's little uh, staying on the course, especially when the course is painful. These kinds of individuals, they don't make good leaders, and they certainly don't make good fathers. Secondly, there is in- irresponsibility to the allurement of this world. Spiritual teenagers can handle a few battles, but when the battle becomes intense, they cave. They can't resist the magic of this world, the draw of this world system that we're in, and they become irresponsible. The third is familiar to all of us, especially those of us that have had children, 
There is an insensitivity when the will is challenged. You know, which one of us as parents haven't had to deal with stubbornness when one of our children didn't get their way? Uh, there's a refusal to uh, negotiate. There's an unwillingness to listen. The, my mind is made up, and don't confuse me with the facts. That mentality, I know what I want, I know, what, I know when I want it, and I know how to get it. So don't get in my way. There is an insensitivity when the will gets challenged. Now all three of these are set forth in Scripture. And uh, due to the fact I'm going to be visiting uh, quite a few Scripture, I'm going to ask you just to follow on the PowerPoint because it does get tedious by the, all the scriptures, and I've got them all on the PowerPoint, so you just follow along. The first person that I'm, I'm going to is John Mark. He is first mentioned in Acts 12, verse 12, and it's that meeting, uh, Peter's in prison, and there's, a, there's this great prayer meeting. The church is gathered at the house of, of John Mark's mom, the house of Mary, and they're praying for Peter's release. Remember, he comes to the door, and they, Rhoda comes to the door, and, well, this is the house of John Mark. It's his mother. It's the first time he's mentioned in Scripture. He's also mentioned in, in the, uh, verses 24 and 25. It says, But the word of the God grew and multiplied, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem. And when they had fulfilled their ministry, they took with them John, whose surname was Mark. Again, uh, we're not told a whole lot about John Mark. We're not giving his struggles, his, his temperament. Uh, but uh, there was a lot of things happening. John Mark seemed the seen God move in marvelous ways. And, and you can imagine that, uh, that he had a, had a high idealism. He had an enthusiasm. And, of course, when he got to rub shoulders with the likes of, of Paul and Barnabas, it was amazing for John Mark. I think of, think of going, to, going places with, with Paul and Barnabas thinking of ministering and thinking of seeing miracles happening and the, and the hand of God move. This was very appealing to someone in his early 20s. Great men of God, in chapter 13, we're told more. Now, there wasn't a church, there was at, there were in the church that were at Antioch certain prophets and teachers, and he names them. Verse 2, And they ministered to the Lord and fasted, and the Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. So they, being sent forth by the Holy Ghost, departed unto the Cilicia. And from thence they sailed to Cyprus. And when they came to Salamis... They preached the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews. And then it says, and they had also John to their minister. So there were three men that went on this journey. There was Paul or Saul. There was Barnabas. And they took with them John Mark. Uh, 
They went, they set sail, they came to the island of Cyprus. And think of Cyprus as a little bit like Hawaii. It was an exotic place. They came to Salamis, which was probably a city of around 100,000. And it had all kinds of pleasures, entertainment, and uh, it, was a, it, was a, it was a pleasant climate. Who wouldn't want to be a missionary? But the winds soon changed for John Mark. It says, And when they had gone th- through the isle unto Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew, whose surname was Bar-Jesus. That means son of Jesus. He's a counterfeit. Son of Jesus. Which was with the deputy of the country, Sergius Paulus, a prudent man who called for Barnabas and Saul and desired to hear the word of God. But Elimas, the sorcerer, for so, so his name by interpretation, withstood them, seeking to turn away the deputy from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Ghost, set his eyes on him and said, O full of subtlety and all mischief, thou son of the devil, thou enemy of all righteousness, wilt wilt thou not cease to pervert the right way of God? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon thee, and thou shalt be blind, not seeing the sun for a season." And he immediately therefore fell on him a mist and a darkness, and he went, went about seeking some to lead him by the hand. Then the deputy which saw what was done believed in being astonished at the doctrine of the Lord. You see, it's an emotionally charged scene. Eliamas, it says, withstood them, and he did it verbally. There was a verbal assault that takes place. There were two men, Elimas and Paul, who stood face to face, and words flew. But if you've ever been in a setting, in a meeting, where two men got emotional, you can imagine how intimidating it was, how threatening it was, and how disillusioning that was to a young man who had high ideals. How reality must have shattered John Mark's idealism. Now, it says, um, When Paul and his company had loosed from Paz, they came to uh, Pergama in Pamphylia. And it says, And John John departed from them. Notice what it says. It's in, in chapter 15. I'm, I'm ahead of myself here. I didn't get that in here. But it says John Mark, he, he uh, when they loosed from Paphos, they went to Pergia and, and Pamphylia, which was on the southern coast of Turkey. And there was this, there was, uh, this imposing um, mountain range. It was, it, it was there also that it was thought that uh, if 
Galatians 4 is right that Paul contracted malaria. So if you can imagine John Mark, he's come, he's seen, he's seen, he's seen the, the encounter with the, others, the other kingdom. He comes into a setting where Paul is sick. He contracts malaria, which causes the eye complications, blindness. And John Mark calls it quits. He heads home. I don't want to minimize how the harsh conditions that John Mark had to face, but the bottom line is he still quit. When the going got tough, he bailed out. Um, now, if you want to know what Paul's opinion of this is, in Acts 15, Paul tells us what he thought about this. In Acts 15, it says, And some days after Paul... After Paul said unto Barnabas, let us go again to visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of God, word of the Lord, and see how they do. This is Paul's second missionary journey. Paul's thinking about going back, revisiting some of the places where they've preached the gospel, and something happens. And Barnabas was determined to take with them John, whose surname was Mark. Verse 38, and Paul thought not good to take him with them who had departed from them in Pamphylia and went not with them to the work. Paul says, no dice. John Mark is not going along. And the contention was so sharp between them that, departed, that they departed asunder, one from another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed unto Cyprus, and Paul chose Silas, and departed, being recommended by the brethren under the grace of God. There was such an intense disagreement between Paul and Barnabas concerning John Mark that they separated their ways. Barnabas said, John Mark deserves a second chance. Paul says, he bailed on us once. I'm not planning on depending on him again. And... Uh, so he took Silas. You know, this isn't just about John Mark. It's about all of us. How do you do when the going gets tough? You tend to just want to check out. If you don't get what you want in your personal life, in your marriage, in the church, is your solution just to just to quit? To give up? You know, one of the marks of maturity is, is learning how to hang tough, how to persevere, and how to stay at it. You know, this morning I knew... Uh, being a pastor, I know some of your personal lives, and I know some of you, you've went through some really hard things, some excruciating things, and some of you are still in it. And I know, being human, that the thought of giving up must have crossed your mind. 
But there are so many of us that are glad you didn't. That you didn't give up. That you, that you hung tough. And if nobody else has ever told you, let me be the first to tell you, it's made you a better person. Going through those hard things. You know why? Because Jesus seeps through the cracks. The second person I want to introduce is called Demas. We find Demas first mentioned in Colossians 4, verse 14. Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. He is also mentioned in Philemon. Philemon, verses 24 and 25. Marcus, Aristarchus, Demas, Lucas, my fellow laborers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Written from Rome to Philemon by Onesimus, a servant. From that, we realize that, that Demas was part of a ministry team. He was someone that Paul depended upon. He was valuable. He was part of the ministry. And then we find him again in Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4. And even though we turn back in the Bible, this is actually later, we find Paul mentions Demas again. He says in verse 9, Do thy diligently to come to me shortly. Paul by this time is in Rome. He's in the Mamertine prison. He's in the dungeon. And, it's com- and winter is coming. And Paul is writing pleadingly to Timothy. He's pleading with Timothy to, bl- to bring his clothes. It's cold. You can imagine how damp those dungeons were deep. They were damp. It was cold. And so he asked some things from Timothy. Do thy diligently to come to me, unto me, for Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and is departed unto Thessalonica, Christians unto Galatia, Titus unto Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Take Mark and bring him with thee, for he is profitable unto me for the ministry. And Tychus I have sent unto Ephesus, the cloak that I left at Troas, at Troas with Carpus, when thou comest, bring with thee and the books. And then he says, and especially the parchments. Paul says, of all things, when he talks about the parchment, he's talking about the Old Testament. Bring me the scriptures. Bring me the Bible. I love that Paul has a change of heart, even with John Mark. Notice, notice what he says. Take Mark, bring him with thee, for he is profitable unto me for the ministry. You know, Paul had a change of heart and realized that John, John Mark grew up. John Mark is one of those who grew up out of the Peter Pan syndrome. And Paul said, I find John Mark, he's, here's a man that's valuable to me. He's able to minister. I wonder we read the words forsaken. It kind of seems benign. But what Paul is really saying 
John or Demas has deserted me. He's left me in the lurch. And uh, having loved the present world. Let me help you put your arms around what Paul is talking about when he says, when he uses the word world. It's the Greek word ion. One expositor says it is refers to the floating mass of thoughts, opinions, maxims, speculations, impulses at any time current in our world. What, which constitutes a real and effective power, being the moral or immoral atmosphere which at every moment of our lives we inhale and again inevitably exhale. That subtle informing spirit of the world of men who are living alienated and apart from God, at every moment of our lives we are breathing in and exhaling our world system. This past week I installed uh, one in a house that I have uh, a high efficiency furnace and as I read the instructions if that thing isn't vented right you're going to have to deal with some carbon monoxide. Carbon monoxide is a is a tasteless odorless gas that is also very deadly. And uh, if there's carbon monoxide in your home, it slowly affects your thinking. It gradually paralyzes your members and ultimately causes your death. It's so silent, so gradual, the alarms never go off. But the same is true of this world system that we live in. You don't think about it. You breathe it in, you exhale. You live in it every day. And gradually you buy into its values, its thinking. And one by one, it affects your members how you live, how you think, what you do. And it's so gradual, you don't notice. You never give it thought. One writer puts it this way, before Demas met Paul, we can picture Demas as an agreeable young man without any particular vice. The material of his character has no rent in it, but he is only shoddy throughout. Under the strong influence of Paul's personality, Demas was like a piece of soft iron, temporarily magnetized by the presence of a magnet. Becoming a disciple, he was carried away by the enthusiasm of sacrifice. He wanted to live with Paul, die with him, and have a throne and halo among the martyred saints. But when Demas came to the great capital of the known world and in the company of the Lord's prisoners, Paul and Epaphras, it was a different story. He was not a prisoner, and gradually the difference between the cell and the outer world became intolerable to him. 
He saw the magnificent halls of the Caesars and the gorgeous homes of the rich and the glitter of the world of music, venal loves, jest, and wine. Such a world cast its glamour over Demas, and he yielded to his charms. The prison where his friends were languishing seemed wretched along the side the music haunted and scented dazzling halls of Rome. Thus Paul had to write one of the most heartbreaking lines, Demas has forsaken me, having loved the present world. You know, friends, you know, all of us know that the world that you and I live in, it casts a spell. It's called pleasure. And there aren't any of us that are immune to it, from the youngest to the oldest here. There is no way we can resist it unless our focus is Christ. There just isn't. You gradually, you gradually yield to its charms. It was F.B. Meyer who said, No man suddenly becomes base. When Demas set out on that journey, deserting wasn't, wasn't part of the plan. You see, erosion takes place slowly. Why would this matter? What could that hurt? And that slow erosion began to set in. Years ago, we uh, toured the Niagara Falls, and uh, on the river above the falls, there's a place where the current is so swift, so strong, that it is called the point of no return. You reach that point of the river with a boat, plan on going over the falls. The same is true of compromise and irresponsibility. That brings me to a very simple question this morning. How are you doing? Are you compromising? You're gradually shifting away what pleases Christ to is what pleases you? Third man I want you to meet is called Diotrephes. Diotrephes is found in the small letter of Third John, and it's almost—it's it's a, 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 it's just a very brief mention. John is writing to the church, and he kind of casually mentions Diotrephes. And it says, I write unto the church, I wrote unto the church, but Diotrephes, who loved to have preeminence among them, receiveth us not. Diotrephes had a very simple problem. He just wanted to be first. He wanted to be a top. He was what we call a church dictator. Um... He wanted to be in charge. He always wanted to have his way. He wanted his opinions to always be recognized, followed. He wasn't worrying about things being done in the power of his spirit as long as he got his way. The problem is he had the Peter Pan syndrome going. A spiritual 
adolescent. That's what Diotrephes was. I'm going to do what I want. I really don't care what others think. As long as I get what I want. I know what I like and I'm going to get it. Even John says, John, the, John had to be a very easygoing guy. The apostle says, even he doesn't receive us. Doesn't even consider what we say. He wasn't an appointed leader. He was a self-appointed leader. He wasn't an anointed leader. He was a self-anointed leader. You know, in some way, Diotrephes got involved in leadership, and he just took over. He went to his head, and he said, I'm in charge. You know, as I, as I, I thought about Diotrephes, how, how great it would have been if he'd have, he'd have had the opportunity to sit in, in our Sunday school class and listen to Nate share what humility means, being teachable being considerate why it's so important because without humility we never know God we can't be taught we know when we think we know everything we really don't know what we need to know Now, I want to be clear that not everyone who disagrees with any of us pastors is a diatrophies. But there is something to be said about someone who seemingly disagrees with everything and is constantly negative about the ministry. That clearly is the marks of a Peter Pan syndrome. Marshall Shelley, in a book he's called Well-Intentioned Dragons, writes, Dragons, of course, are fictional beasts, monstrous reptiles with lion claws, serpent tails, bat wings, and scaly skin. They exist only in the imagination, but there are dragons of a very different sort. Decidedly real, and in most cases, but not always, do they intend to be sinister. In fact, they're usually quite friendly, but their charm belies their power to destroy. Within the church, there are often sincere, well-meaning saints, but they leave ulcers, strained relationships, and hurt feelings in their wake. They don't consider themselves difficult people. They don't sit up nights thinking of ways to be nasty. They often are pillars of the community, talented, strong personalities, deservingly respected, but for some reason, they undermine the ministry of the church. They are not naturally rebellious or pathological. They are loyal church members convinced they are serving God. But they wind up doing more harm than good. They drive pastors crazy or just out of the church some dragons are openly critical but they're the ones who accuse of being pick one 
too spiritual, not spiritual enough, too dominant, too laid back, too narrow, too loose, too structured, too disorganized, or ulterior, ulterior in your motives. These criticisms are painful because they are largely unanswerable. How can you defend yourself and maintain a spirit of peace? How can you possibly prove the purity of your motives? Dragons make it hard to disagree without being disagreeable. You know, I'm, I'm sure that Diotrephes never intended to set out or plan to destroy a church. But by being unteachable, it just came naturally. Again, the marks of someone who has never grown up. So if you're affected with the Peter Pan syndrome, let me give you three thoughts this morning that serve as an effective antidote. First of all, when wrestling with restlessness, consider the benefits of faithfulness. You know, the people who make the greatest impact in those who have a long obedience in the same direction, who are steady, who are solid, who are healthy in their lives, who are healthy in every area, they're not fly-by-nighters. They're people who have hung tough. Uh, you look at the one, you look at, look in your life, the people that you have admired most and have gained the most from, they are people who are solid, stable. Um, they stay at the task through good times and through hard times. So when the going gets tough, instead of looking for greener pastures, they consider the benefits of being faithful. I, I, I just thought of Amzie and May this morning. Uh, they went through some hard times in this church, and yet they've seen the benefits of being faithful. Just hanging tough. Secondly, when tempted with irresponsibility, consider the consequences of carnality. You know, that's, that's just helped me a lot, personally. When I'm tempted by sin, I, I look at the price tag those who have yielded are paying. Even greater than that, think about how it grieves Christ. How it grieves your Lord. Um, recently I heard a story of a man who decided to leave his wife for some gal, younger gal. And uh, a friend stopped him and said, wait a minute, let's sit down here. Let me, j let me just, let's just count how many people this is going to affect? 
They came up with several hundred people this kind of decision was going to affect. Sin is a huge price tag. Uh, and you know, we've got all kinds of examples around us of those who have yielded to sin and the price tag that they're paying for it. Thirdly, when tempted to dominate and manipulate, consider the lordship and the example of Christ. Jesus, Jesus said, I, I didn't come to be served. I, I came to give and to give my life a ransom for many. Consider that let the greatest among you, the chiefest among you, be what? Servant. Let's bow. Are you afflicted with the Peter Pan syndrome? John Mark, Demas, and Diotrephes. Does that describe your life? You know, I have some good news this morning that, that the Peter Pan syndrome is not terminal. You can grow out of it, and it begins by just being honest. It begins with confession, being real, being teachable, and being humble. You know, if there's ever been a time for heroes, it's now. You know, we need, we have families who need heroes, a church that needs heroes. We have a world that needs, he needs heroes. Not the kind you find in some comic book. No, no real heroes. People like you. Those who are willing to meet the challenge of a spiritual adulthood and to grow up. Those who are solid, stable in good times and hard times alike. Someone whose choices and values reflect clear, a clear sense of responsibility. And someone who has wisdom, but is still teachable. That, my friends, is the inner fabric of a hero. Lord, just thank you this morning for these characters, for each of these men. Thank you for the scriptures. Lord, we're grateful for... The word of God that, that gives us light and gives us hope. Lord, thank you for reminding us the need for each of us to grow up, to be mature, to be giving, to be generous, and yet to consider what it means to follow Christ, to be repentant, to be dependent upon Christ and to be faithful. Lord, thank you again for you deserve all the honor and the glory and all of God's children said, Amen.